Hello and welcome to this focus episode of How We're Wired. My name is Eva Higginbotham. I have a PhD in neuroscience and I'm the producer of this series for the Bertarelli Foundation. These focus episodes are a chance for us to dig into more fascinating stories of our brains, how they work and how scientists are studying them. In episode three, we dove into the science of memory and how we remember. But as we all know, our memories are often less than perfect. Even our London cabbie Mark from our last episode has a brilliant memory for music from his youth, but regularly forgets what happened at football matches he attended recently. So why is that? Why don't we remember facts and events perfectly? And what does science have to say about reports of false or even implanted memories? I headed to Harvard University in Cambridge, Massachusetts to speak to someone who has literally written the book on the subject, what he calls the seven sins of memory. I'm Dan Schachter. I'm a professor of psychology at Harvard University, where I study memory and the brain. And I've been doing that for about 30 years here at Harvard and another 10 or so years before that. I think one of the most interesting things about memory is that it's not perfect. It would be fairly boring to study from a research perspective if it was like a video recorder where information comes in and it comes back out exactly as it went in. That's far from the case. All of us have, of course, experienced day-to-day life where we forget things or we struggle to remember something that we really knew we needed to remember. So how does that work in sort of why in our day-to-day life isn't our memory better? I think we want to approach that question by asking about the different ways in which memory can go awry. We're all familiar with forgetting from our everyday experience. There are other ways in which memory can go wrong. Sometimes we remember things that we think happened but didn't actually happen. Sometimes we're plagued by memories of emotional events that we can't get out of our mind. So I think the first thing that we have to do to make progress in understanding memory failures is to have a way of classifying and categorizing the different kinds of memory problems that exist. And what are those ways? Well, that goes back to about 20 years ago when I was really taking on this issue in a serious way of what are the different ways in which memory can go wrong. And I came to the conclusion that there are seven basic kinds of memory errors, memory problems. And then by analogy with the ancient seven deadly sins. I've referred to them as seven sins of memory. So what are the seven sins of memory? Well, there are three that I call sins of omission when memory is lacking. These are basically different kinds of forgetting. One I call transience. That's forgetting over time. We all know from our everyday experience that all of the things being equal, memories of events that occurred a long time ago are more difficult to recall than recent events. That's transience. Absent-mindedness, That is something that we're probably all familiar with as well from everyday life, frustrating episodes. We can't remember where we put down our keys or glasses, even if we just did it a minute ago. So we're not talking about fading of memory over time here. We're talking about a breakdown at the interface of attention in memory. And then the third kind of forgetting, the third sin of omission, I've called blocking. So this is when information is present in memory. It hasn't faded over time. 
We're paying attention and trying to remember, but we can't get at the information, even in the presence of very strong cues that would normally remind us of what we're trying to recall. The most common experience of that for most people would be a tip of the tongue experience mm. where you know, for example, somebody's name, you know you're familiar with the person, you can recall various things about them, you just can't produce the name at the moment you want it. Those are three sins of omission. And then there are four sins of commission, cases where memory is present, but it's either wrong or unwanted. One I call misattribution. That's where you remember some aspect of an event, but you misattribute the source of your information. So you might say, oh, yeah, I know this interesting fact that Elon Musk bought Twitter because a friend told me when, in fact, a friend didn't tell you, you saw it on TV, on a mm. business show. That would be misattribution. Suggestibility, closely related, but this is where misinformation is presented to us and it's incorporated into memory misleading suggestions about what might have happened in the past. And we buy those suggestions and we remember something falsely or incorrectly. A third kind of memory distortion sin I call bias. And this is when our current knowledge, beliefs, and feelings influence and skew our memories of the past, bias our past memories. I think it's very common. And the final of the sins of commission I call persistence. And this is when Highly emotional or traumatic experiences kind of intrude on our memories. We can't get them out of our mind. Intrusive recollections that we wish we could forget and in extreme cases may be associated with post-traumatic stress disorder. I call that persistence. And so those seven sins are all things that, by and large, everyone experiences every day. That's not a pathology or, or a disease. This exactly. is just the existence of being a human with a memory. Exactly right. These are... Uh, not indicative of any kind of brain disorder. Sometimes we think they are. Sometimes with uh, absent-minded forgetting, I just put my keys down a minute ago and I can't remember where they are. You know, someone who's getting on in age may say, is this a sign of, you know, impending dementia or Alzheimer's disease? And in virtually all cases, it's not. It's just this normal operation of memory. And you mentioned before about the idea of suggestibility and there's always stuff in the media whenever there's a big trial or, you know, some sort of case. You always hear about the argument made, oh, so-and-so thinks this happened because they've had this memory implanted. Is that a real thing? How could that work? That is a real thing. I think the, the two of the seven sins that are most relevant to these legal cases are, are suggestibility, as you say, and misattribution. So, in the case of misattribution, for example, someone might misidentify a suspect because they look like someone who actually committed a crime. And a person may misattribute the strong feeling of familiarity they have when looking at a face to actually having seen that person commit the crime when we know that there are you know, many instances where they're wrong. And in fact, data from the Innocence Project in the U.S., which keeps track of these things, has shown that mistaken eyewitness identifications are the most common source of wrongful convictions that are shown to be wrongful because the individual is eventually exonerated of the crime on the basis of DNA evidence. Wow. And it's really these 
eyewitness misidentifications, which I think in most cases are misattribution errors that play a key role. But suggestibility also plays a key role in that very subtle suggestions to someone, even telling them in a lineup that, hey, good, you identified the suspect, giving them a little feedback when it's the examiner who has a hypothesis about who the suspect is, those kinds of suggestions can have very damaging effect on memory and increase someone's confidence in their memory to a point where they absolutely believe that this individual is the one who committed the crime after repeated identifications. So one of the most recent insights that come out of a lot of this uh, research is that law enforcement really needs to restrict themselves to the initial identification that someone makes. Those tend to be reasonably well correlated with the confidence that is expressed. Where we get into trouble is with suggestion, feedback to witnesses that build a high confidence memory out of something that started as a low confidence memory, and that's where we get into trouble. Now, there's also a whole line of research that has shown that it is possible, at least in some people, to implant entire false memories of Mm. events that never occurred. This has been shown going back to the 1990s. Some early work from Elizabeth Loftus and her colleagues showed that it was possible, for example, to suggest to a young man that there was a time when he was lost in a shopping mall and became very anxious over this event. It had never happened, at least according to his parents, and and the individual initially said, no, I don't remember any such event. But then with repeated suggestion, trying to remember, imagine something could have happened, eventually he became convinced that he had been lost in a shopping mall when the event had never occurred. After that individual demonstration, lots of other studies showed that you could implant a variety of false memories through suggestion in maybe 25 to 30 percent of sample, for example, of young adults. They could be induced to remembering that they spilled punch at a wedding when, you know, they were five years old Mm. with repeated suggestion. Imagining that the event occurred would make the suggestion effect even worse. And there was more recently, and I think it was 2015 or 2016, there was a study published that sort of upped the ante on this kind of suggested false memory in that it showed that in a group of young adults, college students, it was possible to implant through suggestion and kind of social coercion techniques, which are not uncommonly used in real life, It was possible to implant in these young adults a false memory of having committed a crime when they were in in high school, Mm. only a few years earlier, that they had never, in fact, committed. They were able to get roughly 70% of this sample to claim that they had committed this crime that they had not. There's been some controversy about that work in follow-up studies, but as a practical matter, I think that has important implications for everyday legal settings. Yeah, and it's quite a scary thought, really, that we're sort of vulnerable to that sort of indoctrination. I'm wondering, is there a a way that you can make a judgment? If someone tells you this is a memory, can you put them in a scanner and see if this is a a true memory or a false memory? Or does it all kind of become much of a muchness? It's a good question. And it's something that my lab has worked on really for around 25 years now, off and on. And I would say that the answer, like many things in memory research, is it depends. 
So we and others have done experiments using experimental paradigms that allow us to induce certain kinds of false memories in the lab, not a full-blown false memory, for example, of having committed a crime as we were just discussing, but you know, a more modest false memory. So in this paradigm, you would hear a list of words and I'll, I'll just say a typical list from this paradigm. Candy, sour, sugar, bitter, good taste, tooth, nice, honey, soda, chocolate, heart, cake, eat, pie. So I give you a list like that and then we wait a few minutes and I could ask you to recall all the words I just said or I can give you a recognition test and I can say, was the word taste on the list that I just said? Mm. And you may or may not remember that. It was it was <laughs> it one of the words on, like on the list. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was. And then I could say, was the word point on the list just now? No, I don't think so. No. No, you're right. It was not. And what about the word sweet? Yes, I think it was. There's your false memory. No. Oh, no. There was candy. Okay. I see. I see. See, it's all the words I said, and I bet many people listening to this podcast also thought sweet was on the list because typically you'll have about 60, 70% of people will say, oh, yeah, sweet was on the list. And mm. many will claim to have confident recollection of that. It's because all those words that I just said are related to sweet, candy, sour, sugar, bitter, etc. So, Okay. Suppose we do this experiment with you and you're in an fMRI scanner now. Mm. You've heard a bunch of lists like this and I look at your brain response when I present the word taste that really was on the list and when I present the word sweet that wasn't on the list but you think it was and I can compare those to what happens in your brain when I present a word like point that wasn't on the list, it's not related to anything on the list and you know it wasn't on the list. Bottom line is we and others have, have done that paradigm several times, and we can see some interesting differences between true and false memories. One effect that we produced early on and others replicated later is that there is more activity in certain parts of the brain when you correctly recognize the word taste as opposed to when you falsely recognize the word sweet. So there are areas of the brain involved in auditory processing that show more activity when you recognize taste that really you really did hear earlier versus sweet that you didn't hear at all. Perhaps showing, again, that there's some auditory trace of the information in your brain for the word you actually heard and makes sense, a kind of what we call a sensory reactivation effect. However, having said that, there are you know, many striking similarities. If you look at the brain maps for true and false recognition, they look very similar but with some uh, subtle differences. And so that naturally raises the question, well, could you take this into a courtroom now and use a brain scanner to tell the difference between a true and false memory in an individual case? And the answer even now in 2022 is probably not because the conditions under which we can tell the difference between true and false memories in the brain, they use these pretty structured experimental paradigms that don't necessarily bear on everyday memories. We need to run a lot of participants typically to get a stable signal to see a difference between true and false memory. We need to give them a lot of these lists to average mm. over in order to get a stable signal. And of course, in everyday life, we're asking about one person's memory for one event as opposed to a group and averaging over lots of materials. And there has been some progress made in showing that we may be able to tell under some lab conditions the difference between true and false memories. 
in individuals, but it's not really ready for prime time in the courtroom yet, in my opinion. My other question is about this idea of recovered memories and these sort of scandals where people went to therapists, for example, and came out believing that something terrible had happened to them in childhood and they'd suppressed it. Is it true that we can choose to suppress a memory and then it come out later? Or how does that work? Yeah, I think in some cases over a long period of time, if we choose not to think about an experience, it can become less accessible and then potentially retrievable later on in response to certain kinds of cues that remind us of the event. It's less clear that we can ever repress a really traumatic memory such that we can't remember the event a short time later. I think that's much less clear that that's possible. In the case of the recovered memory controversy, which really broke out in the 1990s, I think what we learned from that is that many of those cases of recovered memories, probably most of them, but certainly many of them, weren't really recovered memories at all, but rather were the result of suggestions implanted during therapy about events that might have occurred. And there are some interesting studies that showed, we asked the question of, could you get some corroborating evidence for your memory that this happened, that in people who recovered memories spontaneously outside the context of therapy in response to certain kind of reminder cues, those folks were often able to find corroborating evidence that the traumatic event had occurred. But in cases where the supposedly recovered memory was recovered in therapy, most likely in response to suggestion, they almost never were able to provide corroborating evidence. And I, I think that fits with the idea that, yeah, there's certain kinds of experiences that people don't think about for a period of time and then they're reminded of later on. But it's also the case that these traumatic events can sometimes be implanted through suggestion. And I think if I think for myself, I'm sure that we talk about suggestibility and sort of someone else accidentally leading you down the garden path in some ways. But I feel like in my own brain sometimes I might think of something and I'm not sure if it's a real memory or if I'm just getting confused about something. But I'm, I feel like if I think about that enough over the course of time, I'm going to start to believe that it's real and forget that ever it kind of wasn't. So can we kind of convince ourselves in a way of high confidence memories, as you said, from low confidence originally? Yeah, I think we can. I think that kind of process absolutely can occur. We know that with repetition of information, there's something called the illusory truth effect that's gotten a lot of attention recently with concerns about fake news and repetition of erroneous information. And we know that with repetition, something will feel more believable, feel more like it's true. And that can apply to memory as well, regardless of whether the event really happened. Another important point is that when we're trying to remember whether something happened to us or not, we will often rely on our imagination. We imagine the event. We simulate the event. And one thing we've learned, and my lab has done a lot of work on this in the last 15 years, is a lot of the brain regions that come online when we remember an experience also come online when we imagine, for example, an experience we might have in the future. So, it makes sense that we could easily confuse the two because we're relying on some of the same uh, brain regions. And that also relates, in my lab's thinking, to broader thoughts about you know the functions of memory and why it is that we're prone to some of these kinds of memory errors. And one of the ideas that we have been arguing for uh, over the last number of years 
is that although we think of memory as something that's important to allow us to revisit our past, to reminisce about past experiences, and it does serve that function, we've been trying to argue that one key function of memory, particularly our memory for personal experiences that's referred to in our literature as episodic memory, is to allow us to use our past experiences to kind of plan for, imagine, and simulate future events that really a critical function of memory is more has to do with the future than the past. And we have a memory that is well suited, I think, to allowing us to use past experience to run simulations of events that might occur in the future because our memory is very flexible. We can take bits and pieces of different experiences. We can recombine them into novel representations that allow us to deal with novel events in the future that we, we've we never experienced before because, after all, the future is rarely an exact repetition of the past. So for memory to be useful for us to plan for and confront future situations, we want a system that's flexible. And we've done a, lo a lot of work showing that there's a case to be made for that. That was my next question, which is why haven't we evolved to have a perfect memory? Because sometimes forgetting something or misremembering something can have really dire consequences in life. I imagine in particular, if you know, if you're trying to remember where certain food is located or, you know, whatever, then so why didn't we evolve to have this perfect memory? Well, probably because we don't really need a perfect memory. One of the key features of memory is that we are good at remembering information that's really important to recall in the future. So we know, for example, retrieving information is a very potent way of strengthening that information for future recall. And events that are important for us to remember typically will result in us retrieving, rehashing, recalling them again. And the things that are less important are the things that we tend to forget. I also had a friend who once told me, and she studied psychology, that every time you recall a memory, you somehow slightly change it. And I found that a slightly scary idea because you can have memories that are very precious. And the idea that every time I remember that lovely thing, I'm slightly screwing with the memory and then putting it back, that's kind of scary to me. What is that? There is something to that, although I, I think we don't want to go so far as to say that every single time we recall a memory, we change it. I think every time we recall a memory, we have the potential to change it, depending on what goes on at the time of, of recall. And this relates to another really interesting phenomenon, again, mostly discovered and researched in the last 20 years that's known in memory literature as reconsolidation. What is reconsolidation? Well, we know about consolidation. So consolidation refers to certain processes that have to go on in the brain in order to store a new memory. Information comes in to the system and then it takes some time and certain neural processes to kind of consolidate that in a way that it's going to last as a long-term memory. Now you might think once the initial consolidation is complete, that's it. The memory's in the, in the brain and you don't have to do any more consolidating. But what experiments initially with animals, with mice and rats, have shown is that if you reactivate a memory, for example, you condition a rat to fear a tone, and then you remind them of that experience, and at the same time, you inject what is called in the 
memory literature, a protein synthesis inhibitor. That's a substance that will prevent the initial consolidation of a memory. Well, lo and behold, what the researchers found is that if you remind the animal of a fearful experience it had the day before and is already consolidated, and now you inject that protein synthesis inhibitor, you stop the reconsolidation of the memory. Now the animal will no longer remember the fearful stimulus, even though it had consolidated that memory the day before. So the point of that is that when we bring back a memory, it enters a kind of unstable or labile state in which it's open to various kinds of influences, including, for example, a protein synthesis inhibitor. Now, in everyday life, nobody's injecting us with protein synthesis inhibitors when we're recalling a memory. But the point is that when we bring that memory back to mind, it becomes vulnerable to being disrupted, and we have to consolidate it all over again. People are, are looking into that as a potential therapeutic device to help with the intrusive memories that we were talking about earlier. So some research has shown that if you remind a patient, for example, of a disturbing intrusive experience, get that memory into that unstable state where it's prone to disruption, and then inject them, for example, with the drug known as propranolol. That's a beta blocker that reduces activity related to the formation of emotional memories. It's also a protein synthesis inhibitor. And there's some evidence when you do that, you get someone to remember a traumatic event, and then while that memory is in the unstable state, inject uh, propranolol. There's at least some evidence. We need more that you can kind of take the sting out of a traumatic memory that will reduce the negative emotion associated with traumatic memory. Yeah. One thing I'm thinking of is how childhood memories can sort of change. So when I was a kid, at one point, I did something very stupid, which is I put my whole palm on a hot light bulb. And my memory of this experience is of doing that. And then my next memory is of being in bed with my hand, you know, bandaged in some way or protected. But the the bit of the memory of me touching the bulb, I'm seeing that through my eyes. The bit of the memory that's me lying in bed, I feel like I see that from a third person perspective, mm -hmm. like I'm watching myself do mm -hmm. that. How does that work? Is that an imagined memory? Well, it's an interesting question. Most people will report that most of their memories, particularly recent memories, they experience from a first person perspective. They're seeing it through their eyes, as you did during the original event. But a minority of memories, and more so for older mm -hmm. memories than more recent memories, are seen from a third person or observer perspective, where you see yourself in the memory. Now, to me, the most interesting thing about that is that the mere existence of observer memories tells us that these memories are constructed in some way. Not that they're necessarily mm -hmm. false or that the event didn't happen, but it's just more evidence that our memories don't work like a tape recorder because, of course, we don't see ourselves in an event no. as it's happening. <laughs> but we do see ourselves in some memories as we recall them. And so we've done some brain scanning studies, mostly looking at uh, what happens when people change memory perspective, what brain regions are involved, how does that impact the memory. And in fact, we have shown, and others have as well, that if you change memory perspective, something that, for example, you might naturally recall from a first-person 
perspective, you then recall from a third-person perspective, that can have lasting effects downstream mm. uh, on the memory and change the perspective and perhaps change some of the features in the memory. So it's a really interesting part of memory that people have only recently really begun to study in earnest. That also sounds kind of scary to me, the idea that just by imagining something from a different point of view, I could potentially permanently alter my recollection of that thing. Yeah, you could. Um, <laughs> and another interesting feature of uh, retrieving memories is that retrieving certain memories can also make it more difficult to retrieve other memories something known in the literature as retrieval-induced forgetting. Mm. So, for example, suppose I go on a vacation and I review photographs later of certain parts of that vacation when we're on the beach. That's going to boost my memory for those events. But what research has shown is that well, it will also make it more difficult to remember related events that are not retrieved, maybe events that are in that vacation but that you don't remember may become more difficult to retrieve in the future when you're remembering another part of the vacation. So retrieving information can increase memory, it can change memory, and can also produce forgetting. I feel like that really resonates with me because there are definitely holidays I went on as a teenager that I have pictures of. And when I try and remember that holiday, 90% of my memories now are actually of the pictures as opposed to being, you know, sort of anything else. Right. I think these points are especially uh, salient nowadays with the influence of photographs on Instagram, Facebook, and so forth, that we are often unknowingly, I think, sculpting our memories by virtue of what we choose to review from experiences. Wow. That's, that's really crazy. Is there anything that you think sort of as a society, you mentioned law enforcement before needing to be careful, not leading people along. Is there anything you think that we need to be more aware of when we consider our memories and how accurate we all think our memories are? I think just being aware is important. Often we may be so confident in our memories, we think it's impossible that we may be wrong. But there are reasons why we can sometimes have highly confident memories that are not accurate. You know, studies of what psychologists call flashbulb memories, memories for kind of unexpected shocking events like your memory for 9-11, for example, people who are old enough to experience 9-11 or before that, a memory for the assassination of John F. Kennedy for an older generation in the U.S., you know, people will say, oh, I'll never forget where I was and how I, you know, heard about that. And it's a very vivid memory. But again, studies have shown that if you have people tell you their memory of an event like that shortly after it occurred within days when we can be confident, reasonably confident that they're remembering accurately, and then compare that to what they say a few years later or 10 years later, the memories change yet one is still very confident that one's remembering accurately. So I think general awareness that just because we're confident in the accuracy of our memory, it doesn't necessarily mean that that memory is exactly the way we remember it. You know, I was a child when 9-11 happened, and I've had this memory of sitting around the TV with my mum, my family were American, and my mum lived in New York for a long time, watching the TV and the look on her face and her arms being folded. 
And I've, I've told everyone this is the this is my memory of 9-11. And then literally last year, I was talking to my mum about this. And she was like, Eva, we'd already moved house by then. And actually, when 9-11 happened, we weren't in that living room I was remembering with my mum and her arms folded. We were in a completely different house. And I have no memory of that. And what I was remembering, she thinks, is when Princess Diana died. There was a big event that occurred right. and we all sat around and watched the TV and she was you know, looking concerned. But yeah, so I totally buy that. You know, my own memory of that event has been flawed for most of my life. That's a great example of a high, you know, high confidence misattribution error where you're (laughs) mixing up now these important events. But, you know, it feels real. Uh, There's some vivid imagery associated with it. And so you have that misplaced confidence. Research like this always makes me think about how questions in neuroscience and psychology often get to the heart of the human experience. How we perceive and interact with the world is built on so many layers that, to some extent, it really is always all in our heads. Thanks so much to Daniel Schachter for speaking to me for this episode. He's recently released an updated version of The Seven Sins of Memory, How the Mind Forgets and Remembers. So if you want to find out more, you could go check it out. And that is it for this week's Focus episode. Join us in two weeks' time for a sensory exploration of the world of smell. From how losing the ability to smell can interfere in your relationships to a visit with a perfumer creating olfactory memories, we're looking at the science behind a sense that's often forgotten about. I'm Eva Higginbotham, and this is How We're Wired. This has been a Fresh Air production for the Bertarelli Foundation. Follow now for free so you never miss an episode.